I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode 51. How you doing, Mr. LaCour? Yeah, hey, it's uh, it's funny. We're in the middle of February, where most of the country's under ice and snow, and it's like ninety degrees outside. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> gotta love Houston. It hit eighty yesterday, I believe. Yeah. I think it hit eighty. Yeah, so I'm cruising around on the scooter, <laughs> you know, having yeah, a good I time. Shot an interview for my blog, and I was actually sweating. <laughs> it's like it's funny in February you sweat in Houston. Yeah, I think you said it before, but it's it gets a little confusing because you're like, do I turn on the heat? Do I turn on the air conditioner? It's the only place I've lived in the world where it's common that both the heat and the air conditioner run the same day. Just just nuts. So, Mark, I think I might have found some new music for the show. Check it out. No? No? Nothing? Well, the listeners will have heard it, and... And it's ridiculous. Anyway, DJ Craze, I'll put it in the I'll put it in the show notes. And um, I I have sufficiently annoyed the people that don't like me, which is what I'm shooting for. Mark, let's get into some really serious stuff, though. Not really serious, but we had Rob Waters operated operated agreements landman at Mountaineer Keystone in in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, reach out to us on episode fifty, and he gave us some really awesome awesome feedback on the land and legal side. So why don't you break it down for us? Yeah. So before we jump into this, you know, hats off Rob for reaching out to us and our entire audience, when we make a mistake or we get something wrong, reach out to us. We want to know when we make a mistake. And this mistake wasn't on purpose. It's um, I was talking about how I'm seeing, I'm forecasting declining production, especially in land here in the U.S. And Rob was nice enough to reach out and say, well, you know, one of the things, Mark, that you have to figure into this is that typically in the leases, they can't stop production, which is kind of artificially keeping production up. And he is absolutely right. Um, I, I, you know, I needed, I should make myself clear in the fact that you know, operators, when the lease is signed because people want their royalties, there's language in that lease basically saying, here's your production metrics and you can't go below this. And if they go below that, either they violate the contract or they lose the lease. So that's one of the reasons, even in this low crude price market, you, um, you're not seeing declines that you would expect um, in upstream on land here in the U.S. And he talks about shut-ins and, and things that – so in addition to the complications around lease agreements, is there anything else – that yeah so you end up making um um you end up signing contracts on pricing and that's you know that, that that's very complex um but basically in those contracts as well you're you're agreeing to a certain production figure all right w- regardless of what the market price is on on the topic of pricing let's get into the stories because we're going to kick it off with energy sector has a bright future despite oil crisis northeast firms told and there was a bit of a, crisis, a price increase as a result of the some of the things talked about in this article. So let's go through it. Well, so, yeah, let's get into it. So basically, this is a panel in the UK talking about the energy uh, industry. And, you know, I don't like to lump oil and gas and energy together, but they do. And they're, and they're basically saying, you know, things like the North Sea is suffering, but there's an increased need for energy in the UK. Um, and so they're going to have to uh, increase uh, electrical generation and, and upgrade some distribution. And they're, and they're, part of this article is they want to talk about how they're going to do this using renewables. Now, one of the things I find fascinating is 
the people that are pro-renewable and anti-oil and gas are the only group of people I know that say one thing but do another. So, for instance, Greenpeace, right? What do you think fuels Greenpeace fleet? And one of our listeners out there may go, well, they have a sailboat, a big sailboat. Yeah, they do. What do you think runs the generator so that sailboat can have electricity? <laughs> you know, what do you think runs their Zodiacs? So Greenpeace, even though they're anti-oil and gas, buy subsidized oil and gas and they spend millions and millions of dollars on oil and gas. And the reason I bring that up is while this group in the UK is talking about renewables, they are not um, dealing with the reality. So Germany um, had this big renewable push. So basically what they wanted to do is have um, 80% of their energy by 2050 come from what they call green energy. And they put a national program in place. Well, they stopped that program and they only built up 25% instead of the, the 50 that he wanted to get to um, of electrical generation, electrical generation capacity. And the reason they stopped is because it didn't freaking work. The electricity bills in Germany went up six times. It got so expensive to manufacture stuff there, and, and Germany used to be the center for precise manufacturing in the world, that now those manufacturing jobs are outside the country because the companies just couldn't afford to still manufacture in Germany. And then the other thing is that nobody talks about is their CO2 emissions didn't change. The reason their CO2 emissions didn't change is back in 2006, before they started this program, you have something called an intervention, and that's when the electrical grid is about to go down. An intervention is a different term in this industry as well. Yeah, and it's it's when you have to um, – electrical grid's getting ready to fail because it's overloaded, and so what happens is you, have, you fire up a, a separate generator to stabilize that grid. So back in 2006, there were only three interventions needed. Now, you fast forward to now where you have all these windmills and solar panels in Germany, and in 2014, they needed 3,500 interventions to prop up the solar and, and wind energy right? because they couldn't produce enough. And so the CO2 emissions, not only have the CO2 emissions not changed, Germany's built more coal-fired, natural gas-fired electric plants to support this wind and green energy. Yeah, program. coal is, is going crazy in Europe for that reason. Yeah. And so um, the only people that benefited from this green energy program in Germany were not the German people, right? They're paying six times more for electricity than they should. Um, then that the, the industry, the green energy industry in Germany is still subsidized, which means the German tax money is also going to prop this up, right? The only people that really uh, benefited from this mo this movement before it failed was the green energy companies, right? The Chinese solar panels made a fortune off Germany. Um, all the green energy companies that, that built all this stuff, they're the only ones that benefited. So in this report on Europe wanting to move toward more renewables, renewables have their place, absolutely. But here's a good example of somebody talking politically about one thing, but you know they're not going to actually do that and go down that route. I think it's time for an actual intervention <laughs> at this point. We got to sit down and, and just come on, and, guys. And I'm not, I'm not anti-green energy. I mean, I say this all the time. The number one wind-producing state in the in the U.S. is Texas, where we live. But they do it at a profit. It's not subsidized, right? Don't prop up something that doesn't work. And then what happens is that hurts the people of that country. Well, some people that have been hurting are the people of Iran for quite a while, and we've been talking quite a bit about what is going to happen and unfold in that country now that now that the sanctions have been lifted. And we have an article here, Iran, Asia has first mover advantage. And there's quite a bit of interesting backstory in here, so talk us about it. Yeah, so, you know, basically a few months ago we lifted or, or we met the uh, the 
criteria for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Basically, Iran halted its nuclear weapons program. We were able to inspect it to make sure they're telling the truth, and then we lift sanctions. Now, interesting thing is the first um, – the U.S. have yet to, to take advantage of this, right? The first movers actually has been Asia. So the Asia-Pacific companies are the first ones to come in because what Iran struggled with, even though they have some of the largest gas and oil reserves in the world – they have no way to get it out the ground. They have no way to move it. They have no way to process it. All that infrastructure is gone because of years and years of warfare. And they need that all that infrastructure rebuilt. So here's Asia-Pacific companies coming in, forming agreements, and start to build that infrastructure so that Iranian oil can get on the market. So it's um, it's it's interesting. You know, I really thought that the, uh, the U.S. service companies would be all over this, and they, and they haven't made that move yet. Why do you think that is? Uh, it's it's actually it's a legal thing. So part of that um, the uh, JCPOA agreement was that the U.S. companies there was a l lag time, and the U.S. did that to help other parts of the world actually benefit this before the U.S. companies jumped in. So it's um uh, you know I, I don't necessarily agree with um, um, taking not having the market conditions uh, figure out what who should do what where, um, but you know that it was it was a legal thing. Talk to us about the risk that companies are taking on? So the risk is you're doing work in Iran, right? It's still a nationalized um, 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 field, still nationalized production. Um, if you go in there and spend, you know, 10, 20, 30, $50 million, whatever, there's a chance that first thing, another war could break out, that they relaunch their nuclear program, which will then shut down all the sanctions, or they just take your stuff. <laughs> I mean, there's <laughs> risk there because of geopolitical, uh, geopolitical reasons. Um, I, I think the risk you can mitigate um, but you know you're still not doing business in a country that is you know rock solid and reliable. All right, back to a country that is thought of and on the world stage is we are the United States, rock solid, reliable. Everybody uses dollars to buy or barrels of oil and everything. I looked at this headline and it and and I don't know enough of the background, maybe. Maybe I'm I'm in the wrong. I'm not sure, but it really set me back. USDOE disclaims jurisdiction over Canadian gas and author and authorizes LNG exports to non-FTA nations from Bearhead LNG project. That's yes. a that's a mouthful right there. But <laughs> but tell us about it. Yeah. So let me tell you what I really think this is. I think this is the U.S.'s attempt to um, placate Canada after we. Uh, dis we did not approve Keystone, right? I think that's what's really driving this. Basically, um, because of the pipeline infrastructure, and if, if any of our listeners want to see something really cool, just Google pipeline infrastructure in North America and look for an image, and you will be amazed at the number of pipelines that are in this country. So anyway, what this is all about is there are some pipelines that um, transport natural gas from Canada, and then they they slip into the U.S. territory a little bit, and then they go back into Canada. And somebody said, oh, that's import and export, and the, um, the Department of Energy in the U.S. said, no, we're going to make a ruling that any fossil fuels that enter the U.S. from another country and then re-enter that other country is not counted as import and export. Because if they would have counted this as import and export, then we would have taxed that. So I, I, you know, I, I really think this is – so this was a good thing for them to do. This was the right thing for the DOE to do, but I, I just can't help but think it's a way to try to say, look, we're sorry about this Keystone thing. Well, could this end up being then a win-win for the Canadian people because of oh, the of fact because of the fact that they get this, and then when the next president comes in, assuming hopefully they'll approve Keystone. Yeah, uh, that's that's a so, so those two things a few years ago would I would have automatically said yes. 
The thing about Keystone now, first thing, most of it's built. It's just the last little piece, um, which is called Keystone XL. It's not finished. The other thing is uh, with these low crude prices, the business driver for Keystone is not as strong. Um, now, of course, TransCanada is suing the U.S., which they should because they did everything the U.S. did and it was still not approved. I mean, it's sort of like you trying to build a house and you do all the permitting, all the taxes and everything, and they go, well, still, no, you can't build it. It's just it's not fair. Um, but long term wise, as the price of crude comes back up, um, the Keystone will actually benefit the U.S. and Canada and quite honestly, the environment, because <laughs> if, if we don't buy that heavy crude, the Chinese will. And, you know, everybody knows that story. Right. But it's it's not a slam dunk as you would have thought of a few years ago. Right. Just because these low crude prices. Got it. All right. Let's move on to California. One of the things I'm seeing a lot here is is regulation. And that harkens back to the first thing we talked about. But here we are with Valero hitting some problems with oil train plans hit roadblocks in California. Yeah, you know, I love California, but their policies and their rules and laws is just so not beneficial for the people of California. Um, anyway, so here's a couple of refineries. I think they supply about 15% of the gasoline in California. And gasoline's expensive in California, most expensive gasoline in the country. Um, and they had plans to move crude by rail into the refinery so they could refine it and convert to gasoline, petrochemicals, and diesel, whatever, and sell it in California. Well, now, and, and, and these plans were approved, basically transport things by rail. Well, now, uh, the different local zoning ordinances and commissions have killed this project. What they don't understand is what's going to happen if Valero can't get inexpensive crude? What's going to happen to the people in California? They're going to pay more for fuel. So, uh, you know, this is just the city officials who not understanding anything, um, you know, stopping the permitting. And then the state of California itself has stopped. And this is not in this article, but the state of California itself has stopped the construction of pipelines to, to be able to provide feedstock to these refineries. So the refineries just like must be going, damn, what, you know, you won't let me build a pipeline. You won't let me build rail. You know, I'm just going to pack up and leave and you can just be happy paying $10 a gallon. Yeah. The thing that really, the thing that really jumps out to me here is that an estimated 70 to 80 people spoke up. It's, it's always this concentrated, minority bringing suffering and higher prices to the community. Yeah, and, and it's also there's some due diligence by the city leaders to actually really understand what's going on. And if if you're if you're a small sub seventy of people want something to be done or not be done, as in this case, and it's not good for the city or the county or the state or whatever, then you just don't let it happen. Talk to us about regulation, because we were talking about that before we we started recording and and i really liked what you said about regulations being needed but sometimes haphazardly being applied yeah so the problem in this country and the problem i think is getting worse is we need regulations we need laws and rules and guidelines in place the problem in this country is you get people that don't understand the industry making these laws in which case it, it doesn't help it doesn't help safety it doesn't help the business you know we talked a little bit about Germany, look at that, what that did. So Germany was the center in the world for precision manufacturing. If you wanted a great watch, a great car, a great BMW, Mercedes, yeah, a great kitchen knife, it came from Germany, right? That's not there anymore. They've lost all those manufacturing jobs. It's been pushed outside the country because the lawmakers did not think through that renewable energy policy they pushed in. 
So it's um, and it happens in this country, right? It happened when the uh, BP Macondo uh, disaster hit, whereas the federal government wanted to come in and say, okay, we're going to prevent this from happening in the Gulf of Mexico. And the oil and gas industry said, are you freaking kidding me? You can't run the government, much less understand what a deep water operation is. So the um, API, the American Petroleum Institute, put together some uh, put together what needed to be done to keep BP Macondo from happening again. It was called um, Recommended Practice 75. So API RP 75. And the government took that by and literally verbatim without changing a single word, turned it into the Sims law, which is the law that's out there protecting the Gulf. So thankfully, you know, me and my fellow API guys were able to step in before the government started writing laws because that would have just been horrible. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been uh, disastrous. Um, you know, just go to the post office <laughs> if you if you if you really wanna if you really want to see why they shouldn't write the laws for our industry, go stand in line at the post office for a while. Great example, James. <laughs> so, upstream oil and gas series. This is this is really some inside baseball talk, and and maybe we can't go all the way down this rabbit hole. But Lexology produces amazing content, and it's oil price down, defaults up, key risks and practical solutions for dealing with joint venture defaults. Yeah, this is a deep dive financial article, and and what they're doing is they're talking about something called JOAs, which in in Europe and the North Sea is Joint Operating Agreement. And what happens if one partner in that joint agreement has to default, is basically going out of business. And the way the laws are written in Europe, the other partner has to support the guy going out of business, basically spend their money for what they should be paying for, for 30 days. And there's there's a balancing here, right? Because if they get a 30-day reprieve because they don't have to pay anything, then maybe they can get enough cash or refinance their debt so they can actually stay in business in the JOA. So um, this is a great deep dive. If you're in that world or if you invest in that world and you want to understand what the risk and the liabilities are, check this out. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thirty, to, It said 30 to 60 days in that in that period. So I guess a positive thing and a negative thing because you're trying to move so quickly out in the oil field. But if the guy can get some funding, then it's always good to be able to stay in business. Yeah. And there's a multi facets here. Think about if you're an investor, like you know nothing about oil and gas, but they're using your money. You want some type of protection. So, um, this, you know, this is, is, and it doesn't really matter what you and I say, this is how the JOA laws are written. So it's what it is. Um, and, but this is a good article. If you're in that world or if you're investing that world, or if you actually in the debt market and looking to see if you can pick some companies up you need to understand the legalese around this and this article goes right through it yeah and if you're a listener and you do understand these things please comment on this on this particular episode at tribrocket.com forward slash tw51 because we we always have more things to learn and it's crazy but mark Lacour does not know everything no, I, I no. Not only do I not know everything, I learn something new almost on a daily basis about this industry. So All right. it's you know. Let's let's see if we can continue that trend. The future of MLPs when your customer goes bankrupt. This is more stateside. Yeah, so MLPs is a master limited partnership. Uh, MLPs were real hot a few years ago in oil and gas, and basically, uh, an MLP is an investment trust, but they don't pay income tax, and they have shares. And their shares are traded on the major stock exchange. So there's some tax benefits for MLPs. Uh, interestingly enough, we, we got an article coming up, I think, about Kinder Morgan. But interestingly enough, uh, Kinder Morgan at one point was an MLP. Then they decided they didn't want to be an MLP anymore, so they reversed it because there's also some benefits of not being an MLP. But this is an article about Chesapeake Energy's um, MLP valuation declining rapidly. Um, you know, 
if you would have asked me um, last year what company is probably most vulnerable to low crude prices, like who would be the first one to go belly up, Chesapeake would have been at the top of the list, unfortunately. And this is an article talking about how the 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 um, the MLP valuation of Chesapeake has declined dramatically. And then, you know, what's going to happen with Chesapeake and other MLPs if they need to uh, declare bankruptcy? So, um, it's, once again, it's a deep dive. Now, it's a deep dive into the business process of an MLP declaring bankruptcy. Um, and I don't want to get into the details because I don't really understand a lot of this stuff. But um, if if you if you know if 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 that's if MLPs if you have some investment money in MLPs and you're worried about you know what can happen with these little crude prices, check this article out it's by Seeking Alpha. They did a real good job breaking it down for you. One thing I really like is is the they give you the detail and then they give you a, a quick summary of the risk involved in that particular bullet point. So just off the top, the number one, survival of the gathering slash process agreement. And then you know they give you the background and then risk the debtor may elect to reject the gathering process agreement. And so, yeah, there, there might be, if, if maybe if, if you looking for a, a quick primer, if you're afraid, maybe the, your company may go in this direction. It's a great article for that. Let's move over to Oil Voice, Bill Powers, Oil and Gas Investment Bulletin, running the numbers on a low-cost nat, ga- nat gas producer hashtag. And we're talking about Rice Energy, but also comparing to them to some moves that they've made, uh, comparing them against Ultra Petroleum. So let's talk about this, Mark. Yeah, this is a good financial breakdown if you actually invest in this world. Um, it's a bunch of drivers, a bunch of charts showing how things are, are uh, work out. And it's interesting, things like the weather. <laughs> you know, we had a late winter here, so the demand for natural gas is less. Uh, we have a lot of natural gas parked on the sidelines and storage. But it's also talking about how Rice Energy has really done well, especially against some of their competitors like Ultra. So Ultra has way more debt. I think twice as much debt as Rice. Um, and But their production is not quite as good. Whereas rice has less debt and their production is really great because they have a strong hold in Marcellus. So, um, you know, just once again, it shows that if you have a financially strong, well-run company, um, they're able to, um, you know, make money no matter what, even in the market changes such as, you know, this low natural gas price market that we're in right now. Oh, man, that reminds me of, I'm going to throw it in the show notes, Oil and Gas Investor. I tweeted it, I think, yesterday. They, they did a really great video, takeaways from NAEP. And, and the, the guy at the beginning that they were interviewing, Jeff Bradley from Marab- Marabu, Marabu, um, I loved it. He goes, the strong and the debt-free will survive and weed out the weaklings. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it was funny at Nate. I was scheduled to interview this company that had two prospect, two, two pieces of property, if you don't know what a prospect is, with, that they own the mineral rights. And they were getting ready to present to see if somebody would buy them. And they sold their two properties before they presented. <laughs> I mean, how cool is that? It really is. And back to Rice, one of the things that they talk about in in regard to them versus Ultra is that not only do they have good acreage holds, they have good acreage holds um, in terms of where the pay zones are versus Ultra. And that really says a lot about a company being able to evaluate assets before they purchase them. Yeah, and then look at what they've actually done. They've yet to develop. I think they've only developed 10% of their assets, so they're set for the future. Yeah, wonderful. All right, let's go on. We have another Seeking Alpha story, and I'm very interested to hear your perspective on this one because uh, both of us, I think, are, are obviously fans of Kinder Morgan. 
And you've said before, you either love or hate a Seeking Alpha story. So I'm curious if you love or hate this one. Here is what's coming down the pipe for Kinder Morgan. Are you ready, Mark? Yeah. So it's unfortunately for Kinder Morgan, um, they're not doing as well as they should be doing. Um, and, And the reason is the way the pipeline industry works. So what happens is before you build a pipeline, you go out and secure contracts. Basically, people agree to pay you X amount for X amount of transport. And then when you have enough money, you then go build the pipeline. So it's it's almost like you can't lose the business. Unfortunately for Kinder Market, um, they've their balance sheet is, is really leveraged. They're carrying a lot of debt and their credit rating, if they take on any more debts, could go down, which is good. Then increase the cost of their borrowing. And you combine that with the fact that they've had a bunch of con- uh, projects pushed out basically because um, the the constraints uh, that were in the U.S. as far as transport are, have lessened. And then the low crude price um, also means that there's less of um, less demand um, to move that crude around. So you put it all together and, and Kinder's basically starting to slide downhill. Um, now, it's, um, they're not going out of business. They're, they're, they have plenty of cash flow. They have actually a good bit of cash. Um, but they just have a, you know, their backlog of work has dropped. Um, so, you know, it's a good article for Seeking Alpha showing, you know, how even somebody as big as Kinder Morgan, if they zigged when they should have zagged, it affects them in the future. How does how does a company like Kinder Morgan get out of this situation? Well, you know, they're so they're they can do a couple things. They can slash or cut the dividends they pay on their stock. Um, they can refinance their debt. Um, but in both those cases, you know, Kinder still has, I think. Three and a half, three point six billion dollars in cash flow, and that covers all of their 2016 dividends. The problem with slashing your dividends is in your shareholder value decreases. So I think what Kinder's could do is just weather the storm. They should pull out of this uh, probably mid next year. Um, it's you know it's the largest pipeline operator in, in the U.S. and uh, Rich Kinder knows how to run a business. Yeah, and and I see that one of the art, one of the graphs here kind of shows that outlook towards mid next year. So. Definitely check out the show notes again, triberocket.com forward slash TW51. And on the issue of pipeline projects being pushed out, it's something that you have talked about a lot. That's why I threw it in here. Enbridge pushes back timeline for pipeline projects. Yeah. So as an opposite issue that what's going through with Kinder, Enbridge is pushing out projects not because of lack of demand or lack of capital or lack of construction or whatever. It's, it's the local communities not wanting them to be built. And it's, um, you know, I, I have an issue with that because what happens is, and, and the local communities have every right to determine what they want and what they don't want in their community. It's their community. But what happens is if you don't move this cruder gash by pipeline, it's going to be moved by rail. And I promise you, if you live in an area, you would rather that gas go through your area in a pipeline than on a, a train car. It just, it's not as safe, it's not as environmentally responsible. But what happens is that, you know, these local governments don't understand that. And so they're making it harder and harder for, um, for Enbridge to get these, the permits to get these projects do now luckily for for enbridge it looks like they're still gonna get it done it's just gonna be delayed so they got they just got to jump through more regulatory hoops yeah and if you think about that you know those are jobs that could benefit this industry right now that won't happen until next year or 2018 or 2019 so you know and and i i get it you know and this is enbridge doing the right things in the local communities which they're really good at so um it'll help we will get there it's just gonna take longer right all right, I I really really like this this um this last article here. Challenges of networking, or second to last, I should say, challenges of networking the smart oil field. Yeah, so um, some good stuff in here and some stuff I don't agree with. Oh wow, okay, tell me yeah. about the stuff you don't agree with. 
Yeah, so um, good article talking about how basically digital oil field or the Internet of Things, as the rest of the world calls it, uh, would help the oil and gas industry. And he's absolutely right about that. The more efficiencies you can drive, the, the lower the, your costs are and the more profit you can make in a low crude price environment. And so he goes through here and he's talking about the different technologies. One of the first things that – um, that he talks about is the security of a lot of this technology. And unfortunately, he, he's wrong, right? It is secure. There's things you can do to secure it. But I promise you, there's some bad people out there that are very smart, that are state-funded, that can hack into almost anything. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's the oil and gas industry is aware of this. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. Chevron gets a cyber attack 250,000 times a day. Right. Um, and, and they're able to, to ward all that stuff off, but you can't ever say that anything is totally secure. Now, he talks about some um, uh, legacy systems um, being modernized. And you and I, what was the name of that company we went out to, the SP Hydraulic Frack com uh, Conference that we met with? Mobile Data Technologies. Yeah, that's one of the things that they do is really cool. It's like, okay, you got these old-fashioned sensors that don't do anything. You know, Bob drives out here in a truck with a clipboard and writes down the readings on the meter. We can automate that and collect that data and bring it back to wherever you want. So, you know, that was really cool. Real-time data processing, you know, processing costs have gotten so cheap that you can now process that data in real time. And you go, well, what the hell does that mean? Imagine if you're drilling somewhere and you have the sensors, um, you know, manual while drilling, sensors behind the drill head, and you have some processing power that can actually look at that data in real time and steer that drill bit, right, to keep you in the pay zone. That, I mean, that's really cool. Um, and at the conclusion of the article is that, um, you know, in these low crude prices, we need this type of technology, which he's absolutely right. Um, one of the things that he doesn't bring up here, though, is that especially in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, the constraint is connectivity. You go out to the frack fields of West Texas, there is no Comcast, <laughs> there is no DSL, there is no cellular coverage in a lot of places. Now, there's we're getting there, right? But still, um, and, and you know, there's solutions, things like VSAT, but VSAT's very expensive. There's legacy, um, latency issues with it, but we're getting there. And this is, you know, we've been talking about this for three years that the uh, uh, digital oil field is the wave of the future. That reminds me of our conversation with our friend Bart Christer down there at Terra Guidance when we were at NAEP. Yeah, you know what's cool about that? You, neither you and I knew him. He follows the show, right? Big fan. He reached out to us on social, says, hey, want to connect at NAEP. And so we actually met with him in person. So for all our listeners out there, you know, just because you hear our voices on the other side of the microphone, we're still people. You know, if we can connect and, and get to know you, we'd be happy to do so. And actually, we'd love to do so. Yeah, we would love to do so. And that's that's some of the stuff that he's dealing with is connectivity. But um, not not so much um, on the on the setting up networking side, but this whole thing about about remote geo steering it just kind of blew my mind. It was a fun conversation. Well, I mean, it, it's it's way more than that. Think about all of the um, operation right operational people that are needed to run a refinery. If you go in a control room, it looks like you know the bridge of the USS Enterprise. Well, now those people can be somewhere else in the world and do the same work. So it's it's fundamentally going to change this industry. Yeah, it's great. They can be just like me, some some guy in his apartment in his jammies making a uh, podcast, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on over to the south side, the south side of San Antonio, that is. South side oil refinery opens up to show off upgrades. This is a really cool story. This is a great article. So this is a very small refinery, something the Chinese would call a teapot refinery. And it's, um, it's, it's old, like all of our refineries. Um, our audience may not know this, but we have not built a new refinery in the U.S. since 1976. 
Um, and it's an article about how the uh, company bought it when it was uh, going out of business. And they're pu pumping – I think they pumped $100 million in refinery, and they're upgrading it. They're making it safer. Now, they've had some issues in the past, and every operation has issues in the past. Even the companies that bottle water have issues <laughs> every now and then. But they're upgrading the security, the uh, reliability, the safety uh, equipment in this in refinery. And I, it's just a cool story of a small – you know, it's, you can't say mom and pop refinery, but this is a small refinery. Um, you know, they're they're processing about twenty thousand barrels a day, which is like nothing. Um, but they produce about twelve percent of all the gasoline in the San Antonio area, and so they're just they're doing the right thing. And this is a cool story about how you can take a business if you know how to run something well, invest some money in it, upgrade it, and make some money and have people have you know, jobs. Yeah, I, I think it's a great story of entrepreneurship. That's why I love it because. Something was going out of business. Some guys came in and said, you know what? We can make this better. And it employs 105 people, which I'm sure are not small paying jobs in San Antonio. Right. And like you said, they're upgrading things. And so the refinery had problems in the, in the past. And, and you almost want to put on a under new ownership <laughs> sign up <Sign>. up, right. <laughs> about front. And that's kind of what they're doing here. It's like, hey, guys. We know that those last guys uh, did did some things that weren't so great, but we're investing in this thing and we're keeping these people employed. Yeah, and, and they're actually they've actually hired some people, right? So they're increasing the employment rate in San Antonio. Just great story. Yeah, a great story. All right, um, over over to uh, a not great story on Mark Lacour's front, but the onion of the week. Obama tells nation to just chalk up today as a loss. Everyone head home, and we'll try this. To, we'll try this again yeah. tomorrow. Um, some might say that about the last four years, but we won't go there. Um, we have a winner, Mark LaCour. Are you aware of his name? Uh, Chris, yeah. Chris, Christian Rulova. <laughs> I made you say manager it. at uh, FSO Pacific Oil and Gas Limited. Yeah, Christian. In the UK somewhere. Yeah, it's awesome. So leading Asia's energy resources development, Pacific Oil and Gas is an independent energy resources development company focused on helping meet the increasing energy requirements of growing Asian economies. This is what's interesting to me, Mark. They invest, develop, build, own, and operate innovative and cost-competitive projects throughout the energy supply chain while maintaining constant attention to their role as a responsible corporate citizen. And so when they say supply throughout the supply chain on the same page, it really is throughout the supply chain. They are a very diversified company. It's really cool. Yeah. You know what's cool about that? When something happens in one of the segments of the industry, it doesn't tank their business, right? It's like it's like you know my business, right? We cover upstream, midstream, downstream, and service. So when right now upstream and the service companies aren't real hot, so we've just refocused our clients' efforts on downstream, and we're just fine. Yeah. So if you own a company out there, just find how you can be more nimble and and go where the money is. That's what Mark has taught me. Yeah, and, and Kristen, enjoy that bag. It is a great bag from Red Wing. Yeah, a great, great bad bag from Red Wing. Um, I may have one on, on the way for myself even, which I'm super excited about. I'm super cool. excited about. And because soon you'll be going offshore, sort of. I will be going offshore, sort of, soon. And and also, um, I need I need a better bag because just carrying the one that I have around throughout Nape was not great. So, <laughs> so thank you to Red Wing for your sponsorship, and and Christian, it is an awesome bag. Please send us some pictures when you get it. We'd love to see you out there in the field, especially uh, overseas and so forth. And and Mark, uh, to talk about Red Wing quality because we were talking the other day about craftsmanship. And it's really amazing the amount of work they put into these products that they make, even duffel bags. 
Yeah. So Red Wing takes the quality of their products extremely seriously, right? Um, if 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 you imagine handmade uh, leather boots, that's Red Wing, right? But people have done it for 50, 70, you know, 50, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever. Now, there's a lot of automation as well, a lot of machining and stuff that's automated there. But the quality of Red Wing stuff is 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 awesome, and they take it very serious. But it's core to their business. So um, you You're know, talking about that's hand they hand stitch those boots. That's insane. Yeah. And, you know, you don't see that in the cheap ripoffs that are out there. So, um, you know, I've said this before. I have two pair of Red Wing steel toes that I've had for probably about 15 years now, and they're going to outlive me. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to die before they wear out. <laughs> You'll have to leave them to your son in the will. Leave them to my son. Yeah, they're, they're great. So, um, you know, check out Red Wing. If, uh, if you're interested in picking up one of these bags, what do they need to do, James? So it's no purchase necessary. See official page for details. Just go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast and enter to win we're giving away one a week through the end of march and we're almost to the end of february already so make sure to go over there and and fill out the form and hopefully get yourself one of these bags yeah do it all right let's move on to events we talked about ihsera week last week i brought it up again because i i actually dug in it's just amazing to me how many high-level people, and you mentioned it, but I wanted to just actually talk about it. So IHS Era Week is coming up February 22nd through the 26th at the Hilton Americas, and you got John Hess, the CEO of Hess, the chairman and CEO of General Electric, the executive director of the IE, the Inter- International Energy Agency, I almost went, went with the acronym, the <laughs> president of Total Refining and Chemicals, and the president of Mexico. <laughs> it's just, I don't know how they do it, but it's fantastic. This is the heavy hit conference in oil and gas, right? And it's it's all business focused. It's um, it's a shame I'll miss it. I make this every year. This year I have a conflict with a client, so I'm not gonna be able to make it. But um, if you're in the industry and you want to really know what's going on and hear it from the people that run oil and gas uh, businesses, you need to check this out. Another one coming up that we will be at, and a lot of people, Mark, have been have been sending emails to me, tweeting me, and so forth, asking when are you going to that thing or did it already happen or can you give us some takeaways? It hasn't happened yet. National Oil Well Varco's big data launch. Why don't you talk about it, Mark? Yeah, so you're actually, you're not going to hear some sales guy talk about why their big data stuff is cool. You're going to actually hear from National Oil Well leadership how they've implemented a big data program, what it's done for their business, how it's affected their business metrics, and what they're going to move in the future with. So I'm going to be there. James, you're going to be there as well, right? Yeah, I've, I have absolutely RSVP'd. I'm going to be geeking out there for sure. The opportunity to hear a business leader talk how they've implemented something like big data and analytics is priceless, and especially in the oil and gas industry because typically when oil companies do this, they don't talk about it because they don't want their competitors to know. So um, you know, if you have an interest in this, if you somehow touch technology and oil and gas, you need to go to this, and uh, you get a free lunch. <laughs> free lunch is always good. Thursday, February 25th, out at the Capitol Grill, and of course, I'll have the link in the show notes, and then there are so many other conferences, international, oh, goodness, <laughs> Palio. <laughs> you almost got it. Help Palio me. Fines. What is it? Palio Fines. Palio Fines, uh, DCOM Summit. There, there's just so much, and all of it comes from Mark's monthly email. So go to tryrocket.com forward slash events and sign up for Mark's monthly events email because there's so much going on. We can't talk about it all on the show. And... Mark Mark always likes more email subscribers, I assume. 
Yeah, and it's it's free, folks. Uh, as far as I know, I'm the only guy on the planet, and I don't actually do this. My interns do this, but we we go, we search the interwebs and we find all the oil and gas events that are going on. We put them in one place and we put it in your inbox once a month. And often we put stuff in there that the public doesn't know. Like if you want free passes to OTC, maybe in May, I'll, I'll be in my newsletter. So uh, just go sign up. That is yeah. a that's a high ticket item. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, the first Friday Q and A is coming up rapidly. And we've got so much material to work with. We probably don't need more, but c- send it to us anyway because w- we love getting to know more of our audience and we love being challenged because, as we've talked about before, well, everybody knows I don't know everything, but Mark doesn't know everything. And so, and so it's, it's kind of fun um, to go deeper and deeper in, into all of these questions. If you want to submit your own question, go to triberocket.com forward slash QA, triberocket.com forward slash QA. And there's a form there you can fill it out or you can just go to the website and hit the contact form and that works as well. Let's talk about reviews, Mark. We got, we got a really cool review from a, from an LSU tiger. So great positive information, five stars by Jane Boudreaux. Now I usually, I usually butcher last names, but I watch enough hockey to actually know how to pronounce Boudreaux because Bruce Boudreaux is a person I really don't like. I am a petroleum engineering student at LSU. Go Tigers, of course, spelled G-E-A-U-X. Love your podcast. It adds a much-needed balance to the uh, countless number of people who think the sky is falling. Your show helps students like myself understand how much opportunity there actually is while providing information that I would never hear in the classroom. You guys keep making shows, and I'll keep listening. Hey, Jade, stick to it. Uh, petroleum engineers, there's going to be a big need for them in the very near future, even though right now it's not, it's not great job market for them. But um, you know, thanks for reaching out. It's a good Cajun name, by the way. <laughs> it is a great Cajun name. Um, so, so, so talk to him about, uh, because we, we got, we got four the week before and then one this week. So, so just lay it on him, Mark. Yeah. So tip, typically I talk about, please give us a review so other people can find us. How about this week? We do something different. We want to beat our competition. If you're a competitive person, if you like sports or anything that's competitive, we need you to help us kick butt. The more reviews we get, the more we pass up other oil and gas podcasts. So do me a favor. Take the minute and 30 seconds that it takes. Go out there. Leave us a review so we can smoke all our competition. I love it. That's my favorite one so far. Tribrocket.com forward slash TW reviews. Tribrocket.com forward slash TW reviews. And if you made it this far in the show, please share it with your friends. You can do that on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook by going to Tribrocket.com forward slash share LI forward slash share tw and forward slash share fb mark are you ready to go yeah let's get out of here so folks do great work pay it forward and we will see you next time go find some grease guys Man, I'm sorry. I was completely out, not even listening to what you were saying.